You're listening to the St John's Diamond Creek Podcast. This episode presented by Senior Minister Tim Johnson. Hi, my name is Ella and I'm a volunteer here at St John's. I'm going to be reading the Bible passage today. So the Bible passage comes from 1 Samuel 13 verses 1 to 15. Here it is. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among rocks and in pits and in cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days. And the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command that the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But... Now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not left kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah in Benjamin and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Well, you may have seen that we're advertising for a children's and families minister for when Kylie finishes up in that role at the end of the year. So if you know someone who'd be great for the role, please let them know. Now, the thing you first need to do when you're advertising for a role is to make sure that you have a position description. What does the job entail? What will the person be expected to do? What is this job all about? Now, that's important for volunteer roles as well as for paid positions. If you're going to put your hand up to do something, you want to know what's involved and expected. 
We use job descriptions to work out who might be the best person for a role. And we also use job descriptions to assess how someone is going in a role. If you're gonna have a performance review, then you should be assessed against that description. Well, we're in the last week of our series called Flawed Leadership, where we've been looking at the appointment and the performance of Saul, the first king of Israel. Now, if you had to write a job description for the king of Israel, you could sum it up pretty easily. There are two points uh, based on what God had outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Here's the two-point job description. The king was to obey God and live under his rule. And the king was to trust God to deliver his people from their enemies. So obedience to God is spelled out in Deuteronomy 17 verses 18 to 20. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Although the king will be powerful and have authority over the people, he's also under the authority of God and must obey God's rules. Trusting God is seen in Deuteronomy 17 because the king is instructed not to gather lots of horses and build up his military. He doesn't need a big army because God is the one who brings victory and he should trust him. So Saul has been given this job as king of Israel, and we can assume that this job description, obey God, trust God, has been spelled out to him. Because in 1 Samuel 10, 25, which Joel shared with us last week, we read these words at Saul's coronation. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Now that must be a reference to Deuteronomy 17. So it's even a written job description as Saul commences in his role. So as we look at 1 Samuel 13, we can do a performance review of Saul's kingship and see how he goes. Will he obey God and follow his instructions? And will he trust God to win the victories? Well, in verse 2, we see that Saul has 3,000 men in his army. Now, that's a lot less than we saw in the battle last week, and it's probably Saul's standing army. Uh, All the extra troops who fought against Nahash have returned home to their regular work. Uh, 2,000 of the troops are with Saul and under his command, and 1,000 of the troops are with Jonathan, who is Saul's son. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago when I said that in Hebrew narrative, you often have two characters who are contrasted with each other. Well, we'll see that here and in the coming chapters as well as Saul and Jonathan are compared. So Saul has twice as many troops as Jonathan. 
But in verse 3, it's Jonathan who attacks the Philistine outpost at Geba. Remember again from two weeks back that Saul was supposed to do this. He was appointed by God to deliver Israel from the Philistines and he was filled with God's spirit right next to this Philistine outpost and was told to do what his hand found to do, but he didn't do it. And now Jonathan does the job his father was supposed to do. And that sets all the wheels in motion for what follows. Uh, The Philistines hear about this attack and so they bring out their full army to smack Israel down. So Saul then has to rally all the extra troops for battle uh, in verse 3. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. Wait, who's attacked the Philistines? Saul here is getting credit for Jonathan's work. He was supposed to do it, but Jonathan actually did it. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. Again, this meeting at Gilgal was suggested by Samuel back in chapter 10, verses 7 and 8. Samuel said, Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So three chapters later, we're now back on schedule for Israel's battle with the Philistines. But the odds are not looking good. Now we're told here that the Philistines have 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as sand on the seashore. There are so many that they can't even be counted. So Saul is hopelessly outnumbered and fear starts to set in. Soldiers start to hide and disappear because the odds look so bad. And the question is, what will King Saul do? Now, the thing is that the numbers should not be a problem. Israel has more than enough troops to win the battle. Why? Because God wins the victory, not the king and not the army. The role of the godly king is to trust God to win the victory and to deliver his people. And Saul doesn't need to go very far back in history to know that this is the case. Uh, In the book of Judges, we read about Gideon, who was raised up to fight the Midianites. The Midianites and their allies have a massive army Their camels are as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So you can imagine the troops. Gideon has 32,000 men and is outnumbered massively. But God says, you have too many men. If you win, you might try and take the credit. So he reduces Gideon's army to 10,000 by sending home anyone who is scared. But then God says, 
Yeah, nah, that's, that's still too many. I reckon 300 people should be enough. And so with just 300 men, Gideon beats the hundreds of thousands of enemy troops. God fights for them. And so the numbers don't matter. He strikes fear into the enemy army and they panic and flee and they even fight each other. So yes, Saul is outnumbered. And on paper, it does not look good. But his job as king is trust God. Trust that God is mighty to save. Trust that God doesn't need chariots and horses and large armies. Saul, as the leader, should encourage his army to not be afraid, but instead to trust God. So what happens? Well, Saul's been told to wait seven days for Samuel to come and to offer sacrifices before the battle. But it seems like Samuel is not coming. The seven days are up. And so Saul takes matters into his own hands. He offers the sacrifice himself. And just as he's finishing, who should arrive? But Samuel. And Samuel is not impressed. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Cue the excuses from Saul. My men were scattering. You didn't come when you said you would. The Philistines are assembling and they're getting ready to attack. He even comes up with a spiritual justification for his actions. Verse 12. I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favour. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Saul claims here that his actions have been prompted by good motives. He was wanting to seek God's favour for the battle. He was trying to do the right thing. Uh, Last Sunday, my wife Anna left some instructions for our kids while she went out to do something in the backyard. But when she came back in, the instructions had been rewritten. Uh, One of our kids had decided that Mum's plan didn't really make sense, and they had a better plan. Now, how do you reckon that went down? Not well. The instructions were clear, and they needed to be followed. So too for Saul. Samuel replies, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. The godly king of Israel must be obedient to God's instructions, including the instructions given by his prophet. Saul's not free to just decide that he can do what he wants or that he knows best. And the consequences are that Saul's kingdom will not be established and his line will end. God is going to find a new king who is a man after God's own heart because Saul has not kept the Lord's command. Well, this has not been a good performance review. The king is to obey God, failed. The king is to trust God to deliver, failed. That's zero out of two. And Saul has shown himself to be a flawed leader who has 
not been a good and faithful king of God's people. So how should we apply this story about Saul to our lives? Well, there's a temptation with a story like this to do the following. Saul failed to trust God, but we need to trust God and not fear. Saul failed to be obedient to God, but we should obey God and do what he says. So go and do it. Go out and trust God. Go out and obey God. But if we're honest, we know that when we try and do this, we fail. We are fearful and doubtful, and it is not easy to trust God. And obedience is hard too. We try and fail. We, we fail to do the right thing. Uh, we can have good motives and intentions, but do the wrong thing. And we can even do the right thing, but with the wrong intentions and motivations. Now, you might be feeling really defeated because of your own failures. You know, you've tried to obey God, but you keep on falling short. Will you ever be good enough for God? See, Saul is not some evil person who is completely unlike us. Saul is us. His heart, which fears, mistrusts, and disobeys, is our heart, which does exactly the same thing and often in less pressing circumstances. Now, the application of this passage is not directly from Saul to us. The application of this passage has to take the journey from Saul through the Bible to Jesus first, before it comes to us. The two-point job description for Israel's kings is constantly breached by those who sit on the throne. Some of the kings that follow Saul are better than others. Some are absolutely appalling, but none of them adequately fulfill the role. They are all flawed leaders. And you, you get to the end of the Old Testament where there are no longer any kings left in Israel. All you have is the promise that a king will come. This king will be called Messiah or Christ, which means anointed one. That's the hope that finally a king will come who will trust God completely to deliver his people who will be perfectly obedient to God's law in all he does. Who do you recruit for that job? Who can do it? Well, the Bible's answer is Jesus. The godly king is supposed to trust God to win the victory. 1 Peter 2 says this of Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. God wins the victory through Jesus on the cross because Jesus trusts his father to do it. 
on the cross, sin, death, Satan and all evil is defeated. And Jesus rises from the dead as the triumphant king. He trusts God to do it and he is utterly obedient in all he does. The obedience of Jesus is stressed over and over again in the Bible. We see it as he sweats blood in Gethsemane as he faces the cross, but says to his heavenly father, yet not my will, but yours be done. Hebrews 4 reminds us that Jesus was tempted in every way like we are, and yet he did not sin. There is only one person who can pass this performance review. There is only one true king he trusted totally and he obeyed completely. So any application of this to ourselves needs to start with Jesus. Saul couldn't do it. No other king of Israel could do it. We can't do it. But Jesus has done it. Through King Jesus, the victory has been won and God's demands for his people have been obeyed. So the primary application is come under the good rule of King Jesus who has won the victory. Don't try and keep doing it in your own strength. You'll fail. But come to Jesus and receive his grace and love and come under his good rule. In the first week of this series, Kirk reminded us that we have this desire for self-rule. We want to be in charge and do things our way. But instead, we need to take off our crowns of self-rule and and lay them at the feet of Jesus. Self-rule can look like trusting in our own strength rather than in God. Trusting our competence or intellect trusting our accumulated assets and wealth, trusting our reputation, employment status, or popularity. And self-rule can look like obedience happening on our terms rather than God's terms, choosing which parts of God's instructions we will obey and which can be dropped, justifying our disobedience because we know best rather than God. Ignoring our behaviours when they're out of step with God and pushing them out of our minds. The heart of the Christian life is to come under the rule of Jesus and to lay every aspect of our lives continually under his rule. We'll never do this perfectly and we can't do it in our own strength. Jesus has done it and he offers us his grace and forgiveness. Jesus has done it and he gives us his Holy Spirit to strengthen and help us. Jesus has done it and he calls us to follow him, to come under his rule and live his way. As we live under the rule of King Jesus, we are to trust and obey God. We can only do it with Jesus, and doing it is a process of transformation and change. None of us should pretend that it's that it's easy. We'll have times when we fail to do it, and we need to come back to King Jesus and admit our failures. 
We'll have times when we stagnate and feel that we're not growing in our trust and obedience. These are times to draw near to Jesus and to ask for his help. There are times when we need to persevere in listening to God's word, meeting with God's people to be helped and encouraged, asking God to help us keep trusting him and keep obeying him. But I hope you've also experienced and are experiencing now perhaps times when your trust in God deepens amid challenges and suffering, times when you choose obedience to God's word knowing it will be costly, times when you can identify new habits that have been formed by God in your lives, times when family and friends notice changes in your character and behaviour by God's grace. King Jesus enables us to grow in trust and obedience, but we are all a work in progress. He's done it for us as our King, and he calls us to live under his rule, in trust and in obedience. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search for St. John's Diamond Creek.